You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Let's see if I remember how to do this. It's been two years. Welcome to Kerouac Alley. I'm Peter on behalf of City Lights. It's good to be back. You're all looking good. It's a gorgeous night. And here we are. Before we do anything, I must bring our attention to the fact that this is Ramatisha Loni land. The ancestors were the original caretakers. There were over a dozen dialects spoken in this peninsula. So a moment of respect for those that came before us as stewards of the land. Very thrilled to have Ingrid with us tonight, because Ingrid, yeah. I don't know how many of you know this. Ingrid is an alumni of City Lights. She used to work here back in the day and continued to be a really great champion of the store. And, uh, and she's just an amazing writer. And this memoir, which I should add, you know, Vesuvios are so freaking awesome. And please, please, please go in there and buy drinks and tip very, very well because they have created a drink called The Cloud in honor of tonight's memoir. So we got absinthe, a splash of Chambord, champagne, and it's in a fluted glass. Okay? It's all right. And it's 14 bucks. I mean, you know, which is reasonable. If you go down the street, it's probably going to be 20. All right. So, as many of you know, Ingrid also penned Fruit of the Drunken Tree, which won much, much attention and an award. She's also written essays and stories that have appeared in the New York Times Magazine, The Believer, Zizava, amongst others. And we are, of course, very honored to have Esme with us tonight, who is no stranger. We have featured her at City Lights as well. Her New York Times bestselling essay, The Collected Schizophrenias, as well as her debut novel, The Border of Paradise, are incredibly awesome. And we are very, very honored to have you here. I will also bring your attention to this lovely silk screen. Chris, where are you? There he is. Chris is, yeah, hello. I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't get your name. Daria and Chris are silk screening, and it is such a lovely design, and please, please, please go in there, buy a book, bring it out, get it signed, get a silk screen, get a drink. God, what a night! <laughs> Welcome! Uh, I'm so happy to be here. Um, it's so wonderful to see all of you. And I, I love City Lights, um, and having an event here outside with all of you is just magical. It's more than I can imagine. Uh, and I love that we're beneath a Zapatista mural. Um, so, um, and yeah, um, and I do hope that you get a, a screen print. We're giving them out, um, so if you just, you can just grab one. Um, and it's, it's by a piece, uh, an artist friend of mine, his name is Miguel Arsabe. Uh, so I'm just gonna read to you a little bit and then um, Esme and I will have a, a conversation. 
There are curanderos from the tip of Argentina up the continent to Mexico and into the parts of the United States that used to be Mexico. There are as many curandero traditions as there are geographies, healers who use hallucinogens, herb knowledge, dreams. So Adores focus their healing practice on holy oils, which are old recipes through which they can massage illness out. In Colombia, we don't call native healers curanderos, though they are medicine men. Among ourselves, we say, I went to see a Wayu woman, or a Kogi man helped me with my pain. Though they manifest differently, all curandero traditions agree on the understanding that illness is tied to the spirit, to the things we live through, and the things we carry. But native healers root their practice in tradition. Curanderos have lost that direct connection and are fond of improvisation. Their style of healing depends on their personality and the original traditions of each area. Some curanderos are spiritual surgeons, for example. They heal in an operating theater and don a doctor's white coat, fish out scalpels and pincers from metal trays, cut the air above the body of their patients, and sing old healing songs, blowing out smoke and taking out cancers of the real and metaphorical kind in their invisible surgeries. My grandfather Nono healed through blessed water, herbs, dreams, and stories. He treated ailments, then looked for invisible wounds, important wellsprings of pain. This is what my mother did too. Sometimes, Nono would inhale the illness off a person, sucking the air from their face and inviting their illness into his body, where he could survive it and heal it on his own. Curanderos, above all, have to be able to heal themselves. In Cucuta, Colombia, Mami and I are talking about how I am not meant to be a healer because I have still barely survived my own disturbances when Papi calls over the internet. He is at an oil site in Libya, halfway through a five-month post. He is lonely. We know because every day he sends us short emails. Hello, family. I hope everyone is well. The way we react to the things that happened to us today define us in the future. Let us all be happy as we are now, and even more, more happiness for everyone. Papi's company knows he is lonely, too. They have offered to fly Mami for the last two months of his contract. Sorry, I have to turn the page. Because Papi is waiting for Mami's visa to go through. When he calls, I assume it's about her papers. I put the phone on speaker, lay it down on the floor. Mami is sitting on a rug, having just woken up. She is twirling her hair and drinking the iced coffee I made her that morning, shaking her head, and sucking her lips dramatically each time she sips to let me know I didn't add enough sugar. I failed to suppress a smile. The reason Papi is calling, he announces, is that he's just seen Mami appear. Since she was a girl, Mami has had the eerie yet modest talent of appearing in two places at once. Throughout my youth, once or twice a month, Mami's old lovers, close friends, sisters and brothers, called to report her visitations. While Mami was at home in Bogota, her apparitions sprang up all over Colombia, knocking on doors in Cartagena, shuffling down hallways in Medellin, tossing strands of black hair in Cucuta, vanishing into thin air from one moment to the next. 
Mami celebrated each account. Instead of apparitions, she called her doubles clones. Mami often asked after her clones what they had been wearing, what hairstyle they had chosen, where their eyes had seemed to alight. Let's see. Sorry, I lost my... I was flipping around and then I lost... Okay, we got Mami's clone has just a little while ago materialized on the second floor mezzanine of the company rental where Papi was staying, tossing chimerical bucket after bucket of water on the wall. Papi watched her appear from directly below on the first floor where he was working on some graphs in the living room. Most of the time, Papi avoids acknowledging Mami's clone, but he felt such curiosity about what she could be washing, he raced upstairs to look. By the time he reached the mezzanine, Mami's clone was gone. Papi asks, so what were you washing, Sohaila? Mami thinks for a second, probably cleaning the space for my arrival. Oh, okay. Satisfied, Papi hangs up. Mami and I laugh. We retell Papi's story to each other and make fun of him for hanging up so quickly. Then I call him back. When he answers, I ask him how the clone's water behaved in his vision. Well, Iha, how else does water behave? It wet the walls, it dripped down, it puddled. I smile, imagining the water dripping from the second floor into the living room, lapping up to the couch that Papi has told me encircles the whole room and has tasseled round pillows arranged one after another. Do you ever think you're hallucinating? It's a possibility, he says, but I have seen so many strange things in my life with your mother. I really think she has powers. My mouth drops. Countless times I've asked Papi about Mami's powers and he has never given me a serious answer. More powers in a fried egg, he'd say. Or you don't believe in all those canajadas, do you, hija? You and me were intellectuals. If I consider that when my mother and father first met, he was a communist, an intellectual, a youth leader, an avowed atheist, his confessed belief in something as ephemeral and abstract as Mami's splintering in two doesn't add up. Because I can't let go of Papi's crossing over into belief, I try to bait him with a term I've just learned. I suggest that maybe his hallucinations are hypnopompic in nature. I came across the term online while researching epilepsy-induced hallucinations, which Paul, my sister's husband, was experiencing. Hypnopompic hallucinations, the kind that can manifest as one is waking up from a deep sleep or seizure, are considered unexceptional. Puppy doesn't wait for me to finish. But it doesn't matter if science can explain what I am seeing, because it doesn't verify whether what I am witnessing is happening in or outside of my brain. Can science tell me that? I have no answer, and Papi tells me that seeing Mami appear is how he knows that Mami is taking care of him. He feels loved. He tells me of another recent sighting. A few months later, or earlier, Papi was in Villahermosa, Mexico, giving presentations and holding meetings. He fell asleep early one night, and when he opened his eyes the next day, Mami was there in his hotel room, diaphanous, standing at the foot of his bed. Sunlight filtered through her hair, and through her, he could see the white wall behind her and the tan shade of the hotel floor lamp. 
when the apparition began to blur, Papi sprang from bed and rushed to its side. Hold on, Sohaila, at least give me a kiss. The apparition's edges sharpened, like an image shifting into focus through a camera lens. It smiled, lingering. Papi leaned and closing his eyes, he planted a lip, a kiss on the apparition's lips. I am barely breathing. I asked Papi what it felt like to kiss an apparition. I am not sure. He is one second silent. Maybe it was like kissing the air. Mami stretches out on the cool tiles of the floor, having heard him. She smiles, turning on her side, delighted. Thank God, she says, petting her widow's peak. My powers are still what they used to be. Thank you. Um, so my first question, I, I can't <laughs> start it off with a hefty question, so okay, bear with me. So this book exists in a space outside of the traditional Judeo-Christian ideas that dominate the United States, and it made me think of the events I did with Akweke of Amezi, in which they you know, expressed very directly that they are a god, and that psychiatry and mental illness are not the correct interpretations of their work. Have you run up against similar interpretations or inherent skepticism of the content of this book, whether in the editorial process or in the marketing? Um, yeah, I um, I think that I'm you know I you know I'm mestizo, and I I feel like we. Being biracial, like we have two different modes of um, understanding reality, and then I did more than my parents because I also became an immigrant and then I lived in the U.S. and so that's very different. So I f I feel like I can hear um, two worldviews, and for me, it's an understanding that there's just two different worldviews. Um, and what I loved in in writing the book was trying to write my family's worldview only, um, and then just giving space to, to all of it. Um, I, was, I was very lucky that when I was, when I was working on the memoir and I, I was almost done, I was on tour for my novel, my editor at Doubleday, who also did this book, um, was there and my mother was there, and we had this, this dinner together, um, and so she heard uh, stories from my mother directly and I think that there was something so important about um, her having access to you know the person who gave me access to this book because um, I think I had told her before like yeah people say that my mom can, ap can appear in two places at once and they call us all the time to tell us that this happened and then you know my we're sitting in at dinner together and my mother is telling the same stories and she's like really like that is what <laughs> What happened? Um, yeah, so I so I I always felt like my editor, having met my mother, really knew what the book was about, and yeah, I th and and it, she was just like such a supporter and such a protector of the book um, that I you know she didn't allow anything like that to happen when it came to like marketing. Um, I did have. You know, earlier when I was thinking of writing the memoir and I hadn't found my way there yet, 
I did experience a lot of resistance. I remember um, pitching the book to a New York agent, um, and I was telling her how it's, you know, research-based, memory-based. You know, I'm I'm talking to people who are telling me their their lived experience, and this this um, this agent from New York was like, no, but it's fiction. Um, and she just couldn't understand why a book like this is is nonfiction. Um, so I encountered that a lot. Um, and I tell one story in the book, uh, which also happened, you know, before, like during the writing process, um, where I was I was at a party, I was with friends, and I, you know, the question comes up of like, what do you do? Um, and I told them that I was a writer and that I wanted to write this book. And what I said was, um, I wanna I wanna write a memoir, and it's it's going to center around my grandfather, who people said could move clouds. And she, like, beckoned me to the cliff because we were standing at a cliff, and she beckoned me over, and um, I just kind of didn't trust her immediately. Um, but she, yeah, she was like, "Come, come!" Like, I, I. Just, uh, I want to show you how wind works. I want to explain to you how wind works. Oh <laughs> so, wind. how wind works. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so those were the kinds of things that happened. Did you push her off the cliff? Yeah. <laughs> she hasn't been heard from ever again, I'm not sure. <laughs> okay. Which books do you feel like your memoir is in conversation with, if any? And how do you relate this book to uh, The Fruit of the Drunken Tree? These are such good questions. Um, I, th I think, I, you know what I reread a lot when I was writing this is I uh, read uh, Women Warrior. Um, and I remember reading that book and then feeling like it was like a breath of fresh air, just like suddenly understanding, oh, that we are allowed to bring our own worldview into storytelling, or we're allowed to actually kind of center ourselves. And I knew that, but not in that way. Um, and I really feel and think of that book as something that just opened the door for me. Um, and I don't know if if my book would exist how it does if it wasn't for that book. Yeah, I can really see that. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it before, but when you mention it, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I think r just recently there's been so much play with memoir. There's um, Bruja by Wendy Ortiz, and it's what she calls a, a dreamoir. Um, and it's I think it's over the period of something like eight years, she's she's telling dreams that she's had, and she goes back and forth between dreams and memories, and so you go back and forth between reading about all of these kind of mythical monsters, and then like reading about her life, and slowly the, the story comes together. So I would say, yeah, those two books um, just really kind of charted um, a creative, a, like a line of creative desire for me, where I could just really just start to hear and really kind of just very viscerally understand like the story that I wanted to tell. And how do you relate it to the fruit of the drunk? Oh, how did I? Yeah. Um, I yeah I th I think that with uh, fruit of the drunken tree, I wanted. I feel like fruit of the drunken tree is the book that I needed to write, and this book is the one that I wanted to write. Um, I, Fruit of the Drunken Tree was 
maybe like one of the stories that uh, lived inside me that I, I felt like was really kind of um, breaking me up inside and I really had to um, just just tell it but like tell it in fiction um, and with this one it's just all of the material to me was so beautiful and so exciting you know like I'm just I'm, I'm like going back to Colombia and talking to people who my grandfather had healed and just hearing all about um, you know clients that he had and meeting like his old uh, you know friends who were like very old at the time when I met them and yeah talking to people who who were there when you know he moved Klaus and they were kind of telling me what they had experienced and I was just having so much fun with the research aspect that yeah for me this book was just it was just it was fun and I you know I I did in the end write a lot about trauma because, and I, um, I in the beginning, my my first conception of the book, I thought that it would be a fun story about healers, and then somewhere as I was writing, I realized that it was also a book about healing, and then I had to um, bring in like my sisters and like my healing and, and what that all meant in, in that context. I think the distinction between needing to write a book and wanting to write a book is so interesting and, and that makes so much sense to me. And I'm going to ask you about your third book, but not until later. Um, so this book is deeply buried in the culture of Coranderos and the physical journey. You go on to find more of the quote-unquote truth of your amnesia and your mother's amnesia. Do you think you could have written about these things and quote-unquote the gift without traveling to the places um, that your mom, uh, or without traveling to, hmm. Like back to Columbia? <laughs> oh, disinter your nono's remains, oh, um, yeah. is what I wrote there, sorry. Yeah, and um, what would that narrative have looked like okay. if you didn't go? Well, okay, this, the story in this book is wild. That's what I, it's just wild. Like I, uh, what I felt was that I, it started with my grandfather, he could move clouds. Already that sounds like, like a big book. Um, then I lost my memory in 2007 and realized that my mother had lost her memory when she was eight years old. And there were all of these stories that were repeating from my, my grandfather to my mother. So like weird, weird stories that repeated and then from my mother to me. And so it just became stranger. Um, and you know, as if that weren't enough, what happened after was that um, my mother and then two of her sisters had a dream in the same week, independently of each other, that my grandfather came to them and said, I want to be disinterred. I want my remains to be moved. So, you know, to us, that's like a peer-reviewed dream. That's like a dream that like, you know, um, and so we were like, okay, so like we're we're gonna travel back to Colombia and we're gonna um, dig up my grandfather. He had been in the ground for 27 years at that point, um, right? So just in the at that moment, I was like, well, this is a wild book, and I don't know all that's gonna happen, but it's um, very uh, exciting. And I I I really feel that if I hadn't lost my memory, then I, I wouldn't have had access to the story. I wouldn't have known exactly how to, how to write it. There's something that happened with Amnesia where I could hear all of my life again, 
but without all of the weight or judgment that maybe was there before. So it was really like a second chance at becoming. Um, and and then in traveling back, it just it was also just a, such a large sense of wonder of like life can be so wild and light and just the way just recognizing patterns. Um, and you never thought like, oh, I won't go. It was always like, no, I have I, to go. Yeah, I have to go. But like very excited to go too at the same time. That's so great. Um, so uh, I know that you went on your journey as a writer, as someone who was like experiencing the events of the book as you were, you know, thinking about writing it. Um, and so I was wondering... Uh, as the writerly self, how do you kind of move through the world and the events as a writer? Or how would you tell writers or advise them about experiencing something extraordinary and being in the moment at the same time that they're thinking about writing? Do you think that, do you think that overly kind of imagining, for example, like how am I gonna write this can, can overcome the experience itself? And, how did you keep yourself from that balance in that balance and how would you advise other writers i think that what i did when i was back in colombia and it was um there were there was a lot that was happening and i just i focused on being very present and sometimes i would take uh recordings of sound with my cell phone um and sometimes i i was i would listen to them while I was writing and so it would just be like a recording of birds like I have this recording of birds at the cemetery when we were unearthing um, my grandfather and to me it was just like access to what it felt like to be there at that moment um, so I, I just had like a bunch of voice notes that were that, that I took trying to give me access later and then the other thing that I did is that after the day was over I would come home and it would be very late and then I would try to just write a journal entry of all that had happened that day. And it, it, was, a, it was a fight against memory because you know that you remember so much right after something happens and I, yeah, I just really wanted to have access to as many details as possible. Um, but yeah, but so I, I tried to wait until the, the day was over in order to just write everything out as I, as I could remember. I think that makes so much sense to record like the sound of the birds singing instead of being like, I am standing in, under a tree and there are birds above me. Like, you know, it's a very different way of kind of recording a memory. Whereas I can imagine some kind of writer who is more deeply into reporting would, would kind of do that kind of narrative, running narrative as they're as they're experiencing. So yeah, yeah, because I think you're right. Something can happen if you, for if I relied too much on that voice, that it starts to warp the experience. Like you start to think of yourself as in third person as yeah. you're like living the thing. Yeah, yeah. like this phrase would be really beautiful right yeah. here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, how would you recommend other immigrants or refugees or children of immigrants of ref and refugees, how would you recommend that they maintain a connection to their ancestry or motherland? Because in this book, you've done such a beautiful job of being so closely tied to those who came before you. And what do you think helped you to maintain those connections, whereas some people lose those very easily? I think that we, I was, 
in my family, we just we told so many stories, um, and I really just grew up at my mother's feet and just hearing her tell stories all the time. Um, I remember being very young, and then being there was there was one point where um, I might it might have I might have been five or something, and I remember up until that point I could remember. Uh, when I was four, three, and two, and then I, um, as I became six, I, I forgot what it was like to be two, or I just didn't remember, and I remember um, just being very shocked, and just telling my mother, like, wait, your, your memory just disappears, and just had this, like, terrified, like, it just goes away, um, and she was like, yeah, I don't remember, like, what it was like when you were that young, and this terrified me that you can just lose your life like that. Um, but I, but, and I think like the antidote to that is these stories that we pass down that has so much to teach us about where our ancestors came from um, and like what we think and what we live and um, how we make sense of existing. Um, I just loved all those stories so much. So maybe the advice would be to to like go back to your family and then ask them what they remember, both from their lives and the people who came before, with that awareness that some t if we if we don't we lose the thread, like we 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 won't have access to, you know what what your mother remembers about your grandmother, right? And it's like if you don't have that, it, you almost have no foundation. You know, there's no ground beneath your feet when that's happening. It was very different from my family where I would hear stories about my, my great aunt, for example, who died in a me mental institution and her whole life, but it came like in pieces, like when I was like 16 and then when I was 18 and then, you know, but I love how in your book, you very clearly describe the storytelling that went on in your family and goes on in your family and I love that so much. Thank you. Um, you kind of answered this earlier, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Was there ever a part of you that was tempted to tell this story or aspects of this story through fiction? I think that I was I wasn't because I I really felt like the the narrative as it was was so extraordinary that I couldn't think of how I would even make it better as fiction and I even felt that as a fiction writer I couldn't have come up with the extraordinary things that happen in the book, um, like this, I you know this the th you know three people having a dream and then that being the 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 time when everyone decides like yes we're buying tickets we're borrowing money we're taking time away you know like um, for that to 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 get that to happen um, I don't I couldn't have imagined that um, and it just it just kind of continued like when we. When we when we got to Colombia and we were trying to figure out why my grandmother why my grandfather would have liked for his remains to be disinterred, one of the aunts who had a dream went to the grave to check in on it and found that people had been um, sticking pieces of paper into the grave and in those papers were um, they were asking for miracles or they were making requests. Um, and then, so it was a miraculous grave, and this is the, the kind of thing that can happen very easily in Colombia. And sometimes it's like a, a doctor dies, for example, so it's not even 
it, it's not even curanderos or like you know people who are into that world even and you know it'll become a miraculous grave for some reason like maybe somebody asked the grave for a miracle and then it conceded and now it's a miraculous grave um yeah so it just felt like i couldn't have come up with that you know like it's just so extraordinary that i i just all the way through i felt like this is so extraordinary and so wild like i i'm so happy with the narrative structure <laughs> that just kind of like naturally took place and i'm uh yeah i was just i was just very satisfied with with everything there are a variety of very beautiful photographs that are um, throughout the book, so I have a couple of questions about those. One is how did you decide to include photographs? And the other one is I know that a lot of those photographs are Polaroids, and I'm curious as to why you chose the medium of Polaroids, which is not only film, but an analog, but it's a very instant form of film. And why did you choose Polaroids as opposed to, say, like a Canon AE-1 or something like that? Can you talk about the photographs? Yeah. Um, so I knew, so what I knew, you know, before I got um, on the plane to Colombia is that I was going to go after a lot of ghost stories or just like a lot of, um, you know, stories that told about magic and what I really wanted was to have a, um, a medium that would kind of have like an air of evidence um, and Polaroids to me like have that air of like this is evidence and you you take it it comes out you can't um, mess with it in Photoshop like crime scenes like crime scenes yeah, yeah. and so I, I think I had seen a lot of memoirs that use photos, and it's always a little bit used as illustration to the story. Um, and I really wanted to use photos, you know, on conceptually to try to track um, the spectral or like the ghostly in in the story as I was living it. Um, so I just had it with me at all times, and then you know I would be talking to an aunt. and you know we were just talking about you know how she is or whatever, and then suddenly she would be like, "Oh yeah, like, this do you see that tree like I've been seeing the same ghost since I was like six years old and she was like describing it to me and then like the the light fell into the, into that um, part of the jungle in a way and then I took a photo so it was just like things like that where I was just hearing what I what the stories are being told and then looking for how I could take evidence of, of that it's so interesting too because in my book when I was experiencing the delusion that I was dead, I took a lot of Polaroids of myself. And it again, it was like evidence. I think that it's a bit, uh, Polaroids are very often a, a kind of format for evidence. Okay, so something a little bit different, which is uh, you wrote this beautiful piece about mesmerism and how mesmerism is an element of how, of your writing process. But I also read something recently where you talked about how your process had to change a little bit. And so I, I was wondering, how would you advise writers who feel very like, attached to their process and like, feel like it can't change? Um, what are your thoughts about process and flexibility? Um, yeah, so, I, so my, my process used before, so I got a kitten and I, it changed my life. Um, <laughs> My process before was that I would 
I would like wake up um, and I would I would put on this this um, like a clothing item that's in in this color blue that I don't wear otherwise, so I just wear it to writing. And then I would go into this long hour long process where I'm like making my food, which is always the same, and I'm listening to one song on repeat. And I'm just basically trying to hypnotize myself so that when I sit down and I start to write, that I'm just in a very different place than I would got be. Got a kitten. Usually, <laughs> I got a kitten. Um, and she just would refuse to eat. Like she just does not eat if I don't play with her. So not even if my partner plays with her, like it, it's not, she just won't eat. Like I have to play with her and then that lasts for a while. And then, um, and then she will finally eat. Um, and so I, so I had to like, uh, you know, adapt. I never thought that I would change my, my process around for anyone. Um, so now I do that and then I, I go into my writing room and then I put on the color. And I do um, try to do something similar, but I'm just cleaning up the space or I'm just rearranging things while listening to a song on repeat. And so it's much shorter time. But yeah, I don't know. I, th I think that sometimes we feel that the writing life is the life. And I think that we forget that without the, without the other part of your life, like the life that feeds you, that then it doesn't work. Like you, you actually need all of the things. Um, yeah, I, for me, I just had to uh, think about what it was that I was losing and then trying to come up with a different way to, to get the same effect. I also had to move my writing desk so that she had like a little chair by the window. So she's just like really just, yeah. I feel like she must think that she's the alpha cat. I think all pets kind of think they're the alpha, but you know. Um, what have you been reading lately? And have you read anything particularly exciting? I think that the, the last book that I've, I've been um, really excited by is um, Hurricane Season by Fernanda Melchor. Just because it's so, I just, the storytelling in that is, is beautiful and amazing. Um, and it, it starts with this telling of a witch. So it sounds like a very uh, mythical book. And then as you read, you start to realize that the witch is a, is a person who's a trans uh, man and a trans woman. Um, and um, it's a it's a story about a town and like the violence in the town. So it just very slowly becomes very raw and just very like Who textured. Fernanda Melchor. It's beautiful. What about you? Do you have any? I've had a lot of trouble reading ever since the pandemic started, and so I I am going to try to take the advice of a friend and try to read a couple of poems in the morning and then before I go to bed. So that's my new my yeah. new project. It's Last, hard to read for me. Yeah, no, I agree. I'm like slowly um, getting it back. Yeah. The Salmaz Sharif book, Customs, is the last poetry book that um, I, yeah, that just really moved me. I love me. her poems, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, I have one last question, which is, do you, I kind of, I know this is kind of a horrible question to ask somebody when they're on their book tour, but are you, do you have a vision of what your third book will be? And if so, can you tell us anything about it? I have been writing short stories 
um, which I I think I'm finding out. I just really love to change form. So I really loved what it felt like to go from novel to memoir. Um, and I don't quite yet want to return to novel or memoir. So now I'm doing short stories. I find them wonderful, but super vexing. Like I'm just very kind of, why can't you, you know, where I feel like I, I try to write a novel basically and I have to remind myself to to keep it short. Um, yeah, and what I, this is very early, but what I think is that it's, uh, it's going to be um, a curandero's office and then maybe each story is people who come to see him and then you know sometimes it, it would you know the story would just be it, it goes on like it's not going to be based there so that's what i think i love that and i cannot wait to read it um thank you so much thank, thank you. you thank you Esme. we've got books at the front counter please pick them up they've got drinks at vesuvio's the cloud is 14 bucks uh it's absinthe it's champagne and it's in a fluted glass. Come on, folks. Esme, thank you for doing the honors. And Ingrid, congratulations. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.